some names have the power to live on throughout history because of greatness, because of great and incredible things that these individuals have done that allow them to be remembered for years and years and generations and generations. Some names go down in history for other reasons. And so if I mention names like Lance Armstrong or Tanya Harding or Rosie Ruiz, if you're of the right age, maybe you remember those names and maybe they resonate and they probably bring about similar thoughts and feelings because all of these people went through great and somewhat nefarious links to try to become great, to try to become the best at what they do. For Lance Armstrong, he was a multi-time Tour de, For- Tour de France winning cyclist, and it was found out that he was blood doping to achieve that. Now, I don't know the difference between blood doping and regular doping, but every time they talk about him, they say blood doping, and it sounds so much worse. And I don't really know what it means, but it doesn't sound good, and it's certainly, if you've ever mountain biked with me, not something I'm familiar with because I don't ride like somebody who's doing that. But still, it's a really intense thing that he went through to make himself at the top of his profession, at the top of his passion. For Tanya Harding, she was one of the top figure skaters in the world in the late 80s and early 90s. But she had some competition, another American skater named Nancy Kerrigan. And so it has been said and implied and pretty much proven that she and her boyfriend conspired together to pay someone to attack Nancy Kerrigan and take her out and ultimately almost cost Nancy a chance to go to the Olympics. Rosie Ruiz is a little more my speed when it comes to cheating. Because I'm not a particularly violent person. I'm not going to do any blood doping because I don't know what it means and it sounds gross and weird. But Rosie Ruiz was someone who had this amazing combination of seemingly hated to run but also wanted to win marathons. And I resonate with that because I, too, hate to run but would kind of like to win a marathon. And so in 1980, Rosie Ruiz won the Boston Marathon, one of these big, incredible, important races. But then people started noticing in her post-race interviews that she didn't look particularly sweaty. And now I know that not everyone sweats like me, and it's just this gross thing when it's 72 degrees outside and I go for a walk and I'm sweating like someone who has actually ran a marathon. But usually when people run a marathon, they get at least a little misty. And they started noticing she wasn't really out of breath, she wasn't really sweaty, and she didn't seem as excited as you would think someone would be for winning the Boston Marathon. And they started doing some research and found out that she did not run the 26.2 miles of the Boston Marathon. She ran the last one mile. And I am not a marathon runner, but I feel like if I had a good enough head start and I only had to run one mile, I could probably beat all of the other people that are running all the other miles. And that's what happened. And of course, she was found out and caught. But it shows us that people will go to great lengths to be the best at something. People will go to great lengths to be the greatest and have their name echo down throughout history. And there's something inside of us, something inside of humanity that drives us towards that. Some maybe more than others. Some it drives to do kind of sketchy things and others that just drives them to have lives of discipline and dedication and working harder than everybody else. But there is something inside of us where we like to be recognized as great at something. And this sneaks into the life of Christians. And this has the ability to sneak into the kingdom of God and inside of our churches as well. 
where we start to try to rank and elevate ourselves above others for spiritual reasons. And the disciples had a dispute just like this. In Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 24, they began to argue with one another about their position in the kingdom of God and who was the best and who was the greatest in the kingdom of God. And this deep well of pride began to reveal itself. But then Jesus intervenes and he teaches them, as he's going to teach us today, to see the world and the people in it differently through kingdom eyes and begin to recognize where our ambition should really lie, not in elevating ourselves, but using our gifts and the things that God has given us to elevate others and most importantly, to glorify God. And so today we're going to look at the greatest and the least according to the kingdom of God and learn how to begin to live lives that honor and glorify our king who humbled himself for us and that reflects that goodness and that grace and mercy in everything that we do as we use our lives to lift others up and lift up the name of God waiting for the day when he will glorify us. And so let's read from Luke chapter 22. Verses 24 through 30. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greatest one? Who reclines at the table or who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the invitation to recline at your table. And God, you know that whether our pride is great or something that only arises every so often, that all of us at some point in time are guilty of pride and selfish ambition. And Father, we live in a world that that feeds that and that glorifies that and that promotes it and even tries to force us into those rhythms. And so God, I just pray that you, you guard our hearts, that you protect us from those things and you help us to see the world and the people in it and even ourselves through kingdom eyes. That we would take up the mantle of servants, going out and using the gifts and skills and abilities that you've given us for the good of our neighbor, and for your glory. Until the day when you lift us up, when you exalt us, when you give us the glory that only you can give. And so help us to model the life and service and sacrifice of our King in everything we do. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 
So many things are going on in the life of Christ right now. And we've seen over the past couple weeks the whirlwind of what takes place in this last week of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross and then onward to the resurrection. And if you weren't here last week, things took a really dramatic turn. The religious leaders that have been in conflict with Jesus now for his entire ministry had had enough, and they were devising a plan by which they could have Jesus killed. But they weren't alone in that. Because Judas, who is one of the 12 disciples, one of the men who has walked with Jesus through his entire ministry, decided that he was going to use his own selfish ambition to go and sell out his Savior for just a little bit of money and agreed to turn him over to be arrested and prosecuted and then ultimately killed. And then after that takes place, Judas goes and returns to the rest of the disciples, and they all go and they meet with Jesus in this upper room, and they take the Passover meal together. And they sit down, and they break bread with Jesus. And they share a cup with Jesus. They sing psalms with Jesus. They recline at the table with Jesus. And we talked last week about the importance of that communion meal. And how Jesus took the Passover meal and he changed it once and for all, for all time, to make it about himself. Saying that he was the new means through which salvation comes to God's people. And when we take that bread and we take that cup, not only are we communing with the king, but it's designed to bring people together. It's designed to be a unifying meal where people from all different places come together under the the banner of Christ and become one body. Become one people. And that's what the disciples were participating in. The very first communion meal. And they were sharing it with one another, even with the man who would soon betray Jesus. And it's this amazing picture of unity and grace. Until they start arguing. Now in fairness, at the beginning, they have a good reason to want to argue. Because through this meal, and then Jesus drops this bomb on them at the end of the section that we read last week. Jesus says in verse 21 of chapter 22, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the son of man goes and it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then in verse 23, it says they began to question each other, which of them it could be who is going to do this. And so, yeah, it makes sense that this is where the argument starts. That Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And then they start acting like five-year-olds saying, oh, not it. (laughs) Not me. That's not me. I'm not going to do that. That's not what I'm not about. It's probably going to be you. It's probably going to be you. And they start arguing about which one of them was going to be the person who turns Jesus over to be betrayed. But then this argument takes a shift. And they go from arguing about the one who is going to be the worst to trying to decide which one of them is the best. And they start arguing about who is the greatest. So the dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. The greatest in the kingdom of God. The greatest of the disciples. Which one of our names is going to go throughout history? as the greatest of Jesus' disciples. Talk about missing the point. Jesus is sharing this meal with them. 
He's saying, this is my body that is broken, that is given for you. And this is my blood that will be poured out so that you can have this new covenant with God. So that you can be saved by grace, not based on what you do or your works or anything that you can accomplish. This is all given for you so that you can all be a part of this. And they completely missed it. And instead of allowing it to unify them, they allowed it to divide them. And what's even crazier is that they're not actually even arguing about who will be best. Because they all know that Jesus is the the, the guy. That Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the promised one. And so they're actually having this argument about who is second best, which just seems like very low ambition, but that's what they were aiming for. I want to be number two in the entire kingdom. And this seems insane, but it's really just human nature. We have very short memories. Something can happen, can immediately change our mindset, it can completely change our mood, it can completely change our emotions. All it takes is one thing, or one event, or one off comment. And so they're having this amazing meal, and then Jesus says this thing, that one of them is going to do something bad, and all of a sudden they start saying, oh, not me, not me, probably you, probably you, can't be me, because I am the best. We're also naturally prideful. All sin is ultimately a result of pride where we feel like we should be able to do something that God doesn't want us to do, thus elevating ourselves in a place of the God of our own lives. And so the disciples wanted to be the best. They wanted to put themselves there and they allowed their pride to show through. But we're also naturally defensive. And so, of course, if you're sitting at a table and someone says, you're probably the one that's going to betray Jesus, you don't want to be that person. And so your response is not only going to be, no, it's not me. It's not me because I am the best. Think about all the things that I've done for Jesus. And they start listing off their resumes of all the things that they've accomplished for the kingdom of God in order to defend themselves. And so that naturally leads to this kind of an argument. And while we can sit here now a couple thousand years later and point at the disciples and say, how could you be like this in the presence of Jesus? We have to recognize that this is just part of the human condition. And before we can move on to how Jesus corrects this thought process and corrects this behavior in the disciples, before we can learn from the words of Christ, we have to realize that this lives within us. For some of us, it's subtle. And maybe this is something that just creeps below the surface. Some of us are a little better about letting it out in the open. But it's something that all of us deal with and wrestle with. And if it's left unchecked, it can cause serious issues in our lives, in our relationships with others, and even in our churches and our ministries and in our relationship with God. And so we should think that the disciples are crazy for having this argument at this moment. But we should also think of ourselves in the same way whenever we see these same characteristics and traits begin to well up in our lives whenever they do. And so the disciples are having this silly argument, and then Jesus steps in. And what's so amazing as we look through the book of Luke, and really in all of the Gospels, when we look at the last week of Jesus' life, as he goes into Jerusalem and he's on this direct pathway to the cross, we see 
such a wide range of the emotions of Christ. Remember, right off the bat, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and he makes a straight line for the temple, and we see Jesus enraged because of what's happening inside the temple. He sees these people extorting God's people and taking advantage of them, charging them exorbitant sums so that they can go and offer a sacrifice and worship God. And Jesus is angered to his core, and he drives them out of the temple. Before the crucifixion, we see Jesus in the garden praying. And we see Jesus weakened and broken. We see him grieved to the core to where he is desperate, even just for his disciples to stay awake with him. We see Jesus reclining at the table with his disciples and eagerly anticipating sharing a meal with them and being joyful to be able and grateful to be able to share that meal with them. We see Jesus stoic. And quiet in the face of accusations as he stands before Herod and before Pilate. But here in this upper room with his disciples, as they are arguing over who is closest to him, we see Jesus exhibit an incredible amount of gentleness and patience. Because I can assure you that were I in his position, and this is what's happening, I would not be so graceful. And I would not be so gracious. Have you ever taken one of those spiritual gifts inventories? They're kind of like a personality test, but they tell you a little bit about the things that you might be passionate about. I have my sixth graders in our CLC classes every quarter take one. And I've taken a bunch growing up in church and all that stuff. And sometimes I just go through it just to see how it's all working and everything. And without exemption, Every single time I've taken one, they show you what your highest gifts and skills are, and it also shows you what your lowest. And the one that is always, 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 always my lowest is mercy. And so if I were in this situation, and I'm having this incredibly important meal with the disciples, and I am sharing my last meal with them before I know that I'm about to be arrested and betrayed and killed, and this is something that I want to share with them, I put all this thought and all this effort, and I want to give them this amazing gift of the kingdom of God, if all these things were happening, and then they start arguing and pointing fingers at each other, I would lose it. What are you doing? Are you insane? Are you stupid? Why can't you pay attention? Focus, snapping at them. I do that a lot when I want attention, like with students and stuff. So I'd be snapping, like, are you paying attention to me? Listen, people. But he doesn't. Jesus is so calm. And this story just reminds me of how much more I have to grow in, in my walk with Christ and what it means to look like Jesus. But instead of getting frustrated, instead of being angry, instead of, of being saddened by this, he is so gentle, and he gives them this simple reminder. In verse 25, he says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. He says, listen, this is how the world works. The kings of these other kingdoms, they run everything. And all the people of their kingdoms, they work for them. And so they are the benefactors of the work of all these other people. And so they sit high aloft on their thrones, and they make all the other people work, and they reap the rewards of that, and they're considered the benefactors of that. The world works by 
gaining off of other people's hardships. He says, not so with me. That is not who you are designed to be. You're not that kind of people anymore. You see, through his entire ministry, as Jesus has been walking with these 12 men, he's been teaching them about the kingdom of God and how it's coming to reshape the entire world and how it's changing everything from the inside out, that he is starting something new and he is making them into something new as well. That he has taken them with him. That they are no longer who they were, but they are a new people because they are under a new king and belong to a new kingdom. And so Jesus says, in the world, people seek after fame and status. People wake up thinking of ways to elevate themselves, even if that means putting other people down. But he looks at his disciples and he says, that is not who you are. You've been made into something more. That's not how you should think. That's not how you should speak. That's not how you should act because you are brand new from the inside out. This is not the way of Christ. And then he tells them as members of this new kingdom, this is how you should think. He says, not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Jesus says, in my kingdom, your ambition should not be to put yourself above others, but to use your life and all you have to lift other people up, to not be as the greatest one, but as the youngest or as the least of all. It shouldn't be to be the leader, but someone who comes along and serves those who are in need. And he asked them a question. He says, who is greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? And this is a very obvious question. They would have known this. Who's the most important person in the room? Is it the person who sits at the table and eats the food? Or is the people who serve him and bring him the food? Well, in the world, it's the person who sits at the table. But then he says, look at me. And I love the language he uses here. He says, is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. And at this point, they know who Jesus is. Peter has had his confession that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. They've seen him do incredible and amazing things. So without a doubt, they know that he is the greatest among them. And so Jesus says, in all the other kingdoms, those kings sit at the table and they're served. But I am here with you and I am serving alongside of you. And so you need to make the decision, which king do you want to emulate? Do you want to be like the kings of this world who work other people to the bone so that they can grow and so that they can have this fame and status? Or do you want to be like me? The king who puts his hands to the plow and does the work of the people. And remember, this is the same man who is not only sitting with them at a table, but moments before got on his hands and knees and washed the nasty feet of his disciples. He's the man who is about to die for them. And he is the standard for how we should live and how we should think and how we should move. 
He is the standard that we should emulate. He is the king that we should want to follow. And we looked at Philippians 2 last week. And as Paul tells us about the humility of Christ, that even though he was in the very nature of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, he emptied himself, and took on the form of a servant. As he tells us about this amazing decline that Christ endured for us, he leads that off by saying, you should have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. The same mind that caused the God of the universe to step out of his rightful place on his throne and step into time and space and serve his own creation. The mind that caused Christ to go to the cross, that should be your mind as well. That should be the way that you think, not looking for opportunities to raise yourselves up, but looking for opportunities to lower yourself and serve those around you. Followers of Christ, we should be defined by this quote of Jesus in all of our relationships. No matter what that relationship may be, the defining characteristic of who we are should be, I am among you as one who serves. Never thinking, as scripture tells us, lofty of ourselves or arrogantly of ourselves. But in all things, looking to the good of others and counting others more significant than ourselves, loving our neighbors the way that we want to be loved, serving our neighbors the way that we would like to be served, caring for them the way that God cares for us. You see, in the hierarchy of the new kingdom, it's not a race to the top. But it is a passionate desire to serve and to care and to lift others up until the day when the Christ who has been given a name that is above every name will lift up his people once and for all and will receive a reward from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But until then, we love and we serve with a servant's heart, mirroring the Christ who gave all for us. Several weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' parable about Lazarus and the rich man. And in this story, you have a rich man who ate at a table and had all that he could ever want. And then you had a beggar named Lazarus who sat on the floor begging for scraps and fighting for scraps with dogs. And in this picture, we see the power dynamics of that table. That the rich man sitting at the table had all the power and all of the authority, and the one begging for scraps had none. But the incarnate God of the universe was here in the presence of the disciples. And he was not above them, nor was he at a different table, nor was he making them serve him. But he was reclining with common, ordinary dudes fishermen and tax collectors, people that had no great worth, people that we would never remember their names if it were not for Christ. He was reclining at the table with them and sharing this meal and showing this new power dynamic that had come into the world. And then he speaks to them again. He says, you are those that have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel. These disciples were sitting here arguing over something meaningless. 
And Jesus was giving them a kingdom. They were arguing over place. And Jesus says, if you want this recognition as the second best disciple, have at it. And you can argue about that all day. But if you want something that matters, if you want to spend all of eternity with me at my table, the table of a king, and sit on a throne for the rest of your history, for the rest of eternity, then you need to pay attention to what I am saying to you now. Quit arguing over these things that are so temporal and start looking at the things that are eternal. And what's even more amazing is that when Jesus tells them that they're going to sit at his table forever and that they're going to sit on these thrones as judges, it wasn't because they had done great things. In fact, the disciples really hadn't done a whole lot to this point. They followed Jesus around. And they had a couple missions to go around preaching about the kingdom. But they had certainly done nothing like we'll see in the book of Acts after the resurrection and after the Holy Spirit comes when they're going from town to town, turning the world upside down. They're not those guys yet. And so they don't have the resume to sit at the table of God. It wasn't because they had done great things or taught wise words or that they had the most wealth, fame, or power. But Jesus says, the reason why you're going to be able to sit with me in my kingdom is because you have stayed with me in my trials. You see, the theme of the Christian life, and this is hard to wrap our minds around, but the theme of the Christian life is not ambition, but endurance. It's not trying to become the greatest or the most highly elevated or the most righteous person or to have the place of most prestige or to be looked at as a great and wonderful person, but it is our calling to be people who are marked by endurance. That from the moment we trust in Christ and go through the waters of baptism, we walk in the footsteps of Jesus following him everywhere he leads in the good times and in the bad and the easy times and in the difficult through the things that bring us joy and the things that break our hearts we endure with christ so that one day we stand before god and he doesn't look at us and say wow look at all that you've accomplished but he says well done good and faithful servant You've been faithful with little. You have endured through much. And so now you can come in and receive your reward. And the reward for that endurance is an invitation to his table. And at this table, there is no place greater than another. Because how can one seat be better than another at the table prepared for us by a king? Every seat is a seat in the presence of God. And this table will include and exalt anyone who has put their faith in Christ. Anyone who has become a follower of Jesus. Anyone who walks in the footsteps of Christ, who comes out of the waters of baptism and into a life of faithful perseverance following after Jesus, no matter what you have, no matter what you've done in your past, no matter where you've come from, that table is prepared for you by God's grace through God's King that he gave for us from the seemingly greatest to the least. And I love that we sang those songs back to back, singing like a bride waiting for a groom will be a church ready for you. And then immediately going into a song singing that all the poor and powerless and all the lost and lonely can cry out to God. 
Because that's the picture we see in the book of Revelation chapter 19. And in this passage, we see what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus returns to make everything right and everything new, the first thing that we do is we party. And Christ will be eternally united with his bride, with the church, with us. And this is the picture that we see in Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude. Ooh, that's such a good word. Of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immortality and has avenged on her blood the servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That God has defeated sin and shame and all the brokenness of the world. And then in verse 24, it says, The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who had seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne, a voice came, saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. That's who gets invited to the party. All the servants of God, both small and great. And then in verse 6, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. This is the reward for following after Christ. The kingdom of God is not set aside for the few that have power, riches, wealth, gifts, skills, abilities that are so obvious sort of the people who have tried to climb the ladder the fastest. But the kingdom of God is reserved for a great multitude of people who have simply recognized that we don't have what it takes to stand before a righteous God. And so humbling ourselves and believing in Christ and repenting, he lifts us up. Great and small, he invites us to his table, and that is the place that we will have for all of eternity. And so as we are here today, people coming from all different kinds of backgrounds, people that have much and people that have very little, people that have gifts and talents that seem to be very obvious and noticeable, and people who may feel this morning like you don't have anything to offer anyone at all, we need to know that Christ has given all that we need. And that it's not for us to try to argue about who is greatest or who is least. I love every week when we confess our sin, Drew reminds us that we come into this place all on equal footing. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because that, deserve nothing but judgment from God. But he loved us so much that he gave Christ. 
And then no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've come from, we can be saved from the inside out, forgiven of all we've done and all we'll ever do, made into new creations and brought into the kingdom of God and given this promise that if we faithfully endure with Christ, we will one day be with Christ forever with no more shame, no more guilt, sickness, brokenness, or even death itself. And we won't have to worry about who is the greatest or the least because we will see God as he truly is and we will be in his presence. He will be our God and we will know who we are because we are his people and that's all we ever will need. And so let's live lives that communicate to the world around us that we believe that, that our identity is found solely in Christ and lay down the ambitions of greatness, not saying that we don't excel at what we do or we work hard at what we do, But our primary focus is on looking at the people around us and in our lives, loving them as Christ has loved us, and being among them as servants, using our lives for the good of others and for the glory of God until the day when he lifts us up and exalts us. So no matter what your place in this world may be, whether you're in a place of power or wealth or authority, or in a place where you have none of those things, wherever we are, whatever our lot, it is our calling to use what God has given us for the good of others and the glory of God and to seek and long for the day when we, both small and great, greatest and least, will all be made whole in the presence of God and get to enjoy that reward forever.